out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and writer Paul Collins, who was a member of The Nerves and also went on to form the band The Beat, which also became known as Paul Collins and The Beat, for obvious reasons. But, and this is also um, one of those exciting things, there's a new book that has just come out, which has been written by Paul Collins with Chuck Noland, titled I Don't Fit In, My Wild Ride Through the Punk and Power Pop Trenches, with The Nerves and The Beat, which is available from all good bookshops and also online. This has come out on... Hozak Books, so do check it out. But anyway, this is going to be the interview, so you're going to find out much more about the nerves and also uh, the beat and the book. So, uh, yes, yeah, so after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and the musical awakening. Anyway, Paul, tell us now, tell us everything. Yes, um, I, I was born a few years before. I was born in 56, so literally... The first two record singles that impacted me were because when I was very young, my parents took me, well, my mom took me to Vietnam and to Saigon and in 63. And I remember hearing uh, um, Big Boys Don't Cry. I mean, Big Girls Don't Cry. But mm. the new films, yeah, by Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons on a radio in, in a in a in a. Uh, in Vietnamese taxi cab. And those harmonies that and that that whole thing just kind of really short-circuited my mind. And then the next song that did that was Lou Christie's Lightning Strikes. So when I heard those two records and the way those artists, you know, married the instruments and the vocals and and just the whole orgasmic thing of the song, I just I was just I just, it just, just shook me to my core. And I knew then that I didn't know, but I was just fascinated by it. And, and I just kept going with it. And then the next kind of heavy musical transitioning was with my father. My parents were divorced you know, a little bit later on, but he had two records that were really very impressionable for me, which was Ray Charles's Country and Western Hits, Volume 1 which had songs like Unchain My Heart and all that. And Hank Williams, um, I don't know which record it was. Maybe it was his greatest hits, but that whole thing of, you know, Hey, Good Looking and Kalaja and, and just his whole approach. Those, those two records really impressed me, I guess, songwriting-wise. And then the next, the, 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 the uh, kind of like the capper of the whole thing was when I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11, living in Long Island, and I would listen to WABC, Cousin Brucie, every single night I would fall asleep to that, and that uh, AM radio, and that was the best of the uh, late 50s, early 60s pop music. That was everything from, you know, Elvis Presley, Burt Bacharach, The Who, um, you know, um, Mitch Ryder, uh, Glenn Campbell, Johnny Campbell. Everything, you know, from both sides, the kinks, the, the Brit sound, the, the West Coast sound, the, um, you know, the muscle, muscle skull sound, the 
the uh, Motown sound, the whole thing. It was the whole nine yards all rolled up into one. And it was just an endless stream of, you know, these incredible songs. And I would I'd go to sleep to it every night. So I think it just kind of like went into my DNA at that point. Yes, and it, and you had quite, but you had quite a, a dramatic childhood as well, though, didn't you? From from reading the book, this is not this is not a an easy childhood you had at all. You know, it's funny. Uh, do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I'm the youngest of three, and there was a bit of a okay, gap. Well, was... I'm in the middle of four, but you know how you can all sit around and discuss one particular event, and all three of you will have a completely different reckoning of. What actually happened? Was it good? Was it bad? And I, my personality, I guess, was I was just along for the ride, and it was all great. I was in love with all the new. I mean, you know, going from Long Island to Saigon was like you can't get any more extreme than that. But to me, it was all now, uh, and and it's funny because my my brother is the youngest, and his interpretation is dramatically different than mine, which is also dramatically different than my older sisters. My older sisters, they weren't really that crazy about all this moving around and being uprooted and leaving their friends and school. For me, it was just one big wild adventure. So it was dramatic, but it wasn't traumatic. You know what I mean? Yes. I kind of embraced the whole thing. And I thought, and and that stayed with me and I've traveled and my kind of my son is the same way and my mom was the same way. And we traveled all the three of us later in life and we were all like, OK, let's go. Where do you want to go? Let's go. It wasn't like, <laughs> well, wait a minute, where are we going? Or, what, you know, it's like, OK, I'll meet you in the lobby in 10 minutes and we're out of here. OK. <laughs> yes. And why and why Saigon, by the way? Well, this is very funny and and, and very true. My mother, now my, that's, that's, you know, she's, you know, was born in 1932. She was an Italian-American in New York. And, you know, they, there was a lot of prejudice against, you know, the Italians. And, and my father was Irish and, and they were both Catholic. So that was the, the worst, you know, the Irish and the, and the Italians were off limits to each other. So, of course, there were a lot of Italian, Irish, <laughs> Italian marriages, because that's all you got to do is tell somebody, don't, don't date that guy. And that's what they do. So and they got married very young. My mother was 17. And when after 12 years of marriage, and you know, it wasn't working out, uh, my mother and my mother was, you know, really ostracized and not comfortable in the environment we were in. So she just said, look, she she met she. She wound up marrying my father's best friend, okay? So here's the story, the family story. My father comes home one day and says to my mother, I'm, I want you to meet my new friend, Bill. You're going to love him. And she did. And so <laughs> she said to this guy, she said, I want to go as far away from Long Island as, as is humanly possible. And the, and, the, and, the, and the story is, any further than Saigon, and we'd be on our way back. So we went to Saigon. Blimey, that's an amazing adventure with four small children or smallish yeah, children. Four kids. And um, but you know, also this is 1963. America was living a fairy tale, not everybody. This is this is this now flash forward to now and the pandemic and and all the, the uh 
you know, the racial injustices coming out and all the, and people like me and at 65 years old realizing that every single thing we were taught was basically a lie, you know what I mean? And, and coming to, and that's been, that's been, you know, these last five years, whatever, it's been difficult to really know, you know, uh, without a shadow of a doubt that your entire education was kind of built on bullshit. Yes. You know, that, that all these things that, you know, that the American dream and, you know, the, 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 the great white way and, and truth, honest and justice and, and liberty for all, that that was all, you know, I think there's a great, uh, there's a great documentary. I think those Swedish guys that made a documentary, they bought Elvis uh, Presley's Rolls Royce and drove across the country. There's a great segment where one of the rappers go, look, a white man's dream is the black man's nightmare. And so when all that kind of stuff became true and you couldn't avoid it anymore because, you know, there, there was a long time where you could just ignore it. You could say, OK, you know, but it's not my fault I was born white and it's not my fault I was born in a middle class family, yada, yada, yada. But then it got to a point where, you know, you really can't ignore it anymore. Yes, so absolutely. So that's very difficult. And I was, I was going to, with the Italian connection, because I spoke to a few, um, you know, Americans, especially on the, uh, you know, their, their kind of parents. Did did the mafia ever creep into your family at all? Was any, there was any connections with, you know, various I, members? I, my mother's Sicilian. Okay, she's from Palermo. That's the Sicilian area. And I used to, I used to, I used to wish, like, come on, mom, don't we have any mafia? <laughs> you know, that, that kid stuff. But no, there's there's no um, there's nothing as as romantic or as cinematic. As that. No, no. So how how old were you when you came back to America? Then when 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 did you sort of um, leave Saigon? I came. Well, what happened was we 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 were in Saigon for close to two years, and then we moved to Greece, which was now that was the the glory days for my family because Greece in 1965 or whatever was just paradise for for you know a, a middle class american family you know because everything was so inexpensive when we lived we literally in in saigon too we lived like kings i mean our our damas were tailor made not because we were exclusive because it was just easy and cheap yeah. and beautiful and, and and i guess there wasn't you know there wasn't the uh, the shopping malls where you could go and buy pajamas so you just had them made and things like that. So we lived a very lovely, idyllic life. And um, everything in Greece was beautiful. After Vietnam, Greece is, you know, the Acropolis, the Parthen, uh, the Delphi. And just, you know, living there was just the food and everything was wonderful on the GNC. And then at a certain point, I got it into my head that I, because my parents were divorced and my father was living in New York. And I decided I wanted to go back and uh, I went back and that was a real culture shock. I think I was eight and I went to New York and I went to school here in Manhattan in the, in the Greenwich Village. And I, I'll never forget the first day of school. It was like, oh, OK, <laughs> now it's time to learn the facts of life, you know, and uh, I did. But yes. um, so that was that was actually probably. That was pretty dramatic and kind of traumatic because um, I kind of realized at a certain point that this was not a smart idea. Because, you know, my mother and my family with my mom, 
you know, my mom was very freewheeling and, and artistic and loving and, and fun. Life was supposed to be fun. And my father was kind of not that way. So, uh, you know, it was, um, it was difficult. And yes. I think that, that kind of, that kind of created a, a minor schizophrenic uh, character or, or personality in me or something. I became mildly, and I under I underline that schizophrenic just because of these juxtapositions. Yeah, but you know, but then, the yes. older you get, and the more people you meet, every you know, mo- a lot of people have traumatic and dramatic stories, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of them are a lot worse than mine. So I don't feel too bad. Yes, well, I do. I think um, Adele Bertet's written her book about her childhood, and that's very traumatic. So um, yes, I think everyone's got a quite a story haven't they so when you get to 16 this is the early 70s do you leave school at this stage or do you go to college no I left school when I was 17 I couldn't get out of school fast enough I I doubled up on it was really quite easy I I I went to a school in New Jersey right across the George Washington Bridge and it was considered the one of the most intellectual towns in America and people like Alan Alda and Jamie Kitman I mean, um, I forget, uh, uh, Marvin Kitman lived there, writers, professors who, who taught at Columbia, scientists, all these very, you know, affluent intellectual people lived in their town. So they created the, the first preschool in America. It wasn't like Summerhill, but it was kind of on that thing, you know, where you, you didn't really have a school. You had classes in different people's houses and the professors all taught and you know, we had men's consciousness raising and women's consciousness raising. So, you know, for me, it was like, oh, man, this is this is a way out of this whole thing. Because I, I really, truly believed in, in that, that I was not going to I was I was not going to hang in for one more year till I was 18. And I put it in the back of my mind. I knew I I don't want to be a high school dropout either. I, I had enough sense to know that's not really smart. So. um I doubled up on English and math, and that allowed me to graduate a year early. And I did. And I took off to New York. My family kind of just fell apart. That was not that was dramatic. It wasn't traumatic, traumatic at the time. But many, many, many years later, like I'm talking when I started to have my midlife midlife crisis, I realized that leaving home when you're 17 is just a little too young. Because you throw, you know, you get, I, 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 you know, I moved to California and wound up living in the Tenderloin when I was 18. And that was rough and tumble stuff. And I was, you know, a middle class white kid who came from a bohemian background. My mother was an artist. We used to go to the Metropolitan Museum on Tuesdays for, you know. And so I, I had had this very uh, idyllic and lovely, you know, poetry upbringing. And all of a sudden, like, I'm out there, like, really in the hardcore stuff. And I think many years later, I started to feel like, you know, I could have used another year or two of just, like, being in the womb. Yes. I have to say, I've seen the photographs in the book. You are very good looking, though. You must have opened doors just with your smile. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that smile. Um, It's really weird. And I, I, there are some early pictures of me smiling, and it was a big, beautiful smile and a happy smile. 
And then, you know, there was something that we did as rockers where we felt we could, you know, that the pose was to, you know, like look sexy and not mean, but, you know, like determined or, or anything but smiling. And, and I did that for so many years that I think I kind of just lost the ability to smile. And now many years later, I'm, I, I, you know, I have a lovely girlfriend who smiles all her pictures, every single picture of her, she's smiling. And I, and she go, and she's the one who said to me, said, you know, Paul, you never smile. And I said, well, it's not because I'm unhappy. So now I'm like, like trying to relearn how to smile. And um, it's kind of a big deal to me because, you know, I am happy and I want to, I want to um, exude happiness. I don't want to exude sternness or, or, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. I was a happy, I was happy there. Yes. So look, 72, 73, you, you, you're sort of left school, you're in California. I mean, the music scene is changing quite dramatically. The 60s, I mean, you know, we suddenly lost, you know, I mean, I was only about six at the time, but, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, Janice Joplin, Jim Morrison all died the same year. Brian Jones the year before, there was Altamont. The 60s crashed badly, didn't it? It, it had so much and then it crashed and then you got you know, heavy rock, then you got the glam world, then you got this prog rock, then you got Californian singer-songwriter. So musically, where are you going at this time in your late teens? Okay, when when I was hold on just a second. When I was um the, my last year in New York I went to Juilliard. I kind of got in kind of kind of a little bit on on a, a, a scam. I got in as a composition major because I had made an experimental tape in my basement with zero knowledge of music in terms of, uh, you know, writing and composition and all that, all the theory and stuff like that. But the tape was really good. And the head of the composition department heard it and said, okay, I'll take this guy as a student. This is really good stuff. Um, So I moved into New York. At that time, I, I was a drummer. And I had, you know, I had a good set of drums and stuff. And, you know, this is back in the day. Auditioning to be a drummer in New York is is the most hellifying thing. You got to bring your drums with you and you got to go up four flights of stairs and, you know, play for 10 minutes with somebody, set it up, play, tear it down. It's like insane. And um, at that point, what was going on in New York, there was no CBGBs. There were no young rock bands, none, zero. The only music that was happening was either jazz or jazz fusion, you know, and, uh, you know, or like yes type stuff. And, and, and I got, I met, I met, I had a friend who was a guitarist and we used to jam and it was just jams. It was, it was, it was all instrumental. And I remember we had, you know, we'd get a really great song. I said, man, this is really fucking great. And I, the next verse, I'd say, let's do that song. And you can say, yeah, but I forgot how it went. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> yes. so, you know, and we used to go to concerts. Like I remember we went to John Mahavishna with Santana opening up, and, and Alice um, Coltrane was opening up on the harp. And, and I saw Michael Chapman and, and uh, playing the stick with Jeff Beck and, and, and stuff like that. And I thought it was cool, but it wasn't really me. And it didn't really feel like a young, energetic music. 
So there was really nothing going on. And I remember my drum teacher said, I said, you know, I want to be in a rock and roll band. And he said, well, if you want to be in a rock and roll band, you got to go to California. You got to go to the West Coast, man. That's where it's at. So I went out to California. Um, and that is in, in where I come from in the East Coast. That's probably one of the biggest phrases. Go West, young man. Mm. You know, seek your fortune. And so I did. And when I got to San Francisco, I was a little bit disappointed initially because it was all now I wasn't really, you know, I had grown up listening to what I told you and I wasn't really um, devastated by Jimi Hendrix's death or Jim Morrison. I mean, I, I mean, I knew they died, but it wasn't like, you know, I was huge fans of theirs. And, oh, my God, my hero has died. I was like, oh, you know, that's fucked up. But what are you going to do? And um, so when I got to San Francisco, it was all like, you know, Doobie Brothers, Santana, all that kind of stuff, or blues. Like, I, I think the guy is still playing. I remember seeing him every weekend. He was playing uh, Charles Musclewhite, the blues harp player. Yes. Which, you know, and to me, I was like, you know, fuck this shit, man. I mean, you know, I mean, not that it was bad, but it just wasn't my trip at all. And then, um, Shortly thereafter, I, I I met Jack Lee, and when he played me hanging on the telephone on a on a Rickenbacker guitar, and I'm playing drums on a on a uh, telephone book, I was like, oh my god! I mean, I had I just you know it just slayed me. Yes. And at that point in time, the music that I really admired, like Chuck Berry or 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 the Everly Brothers or all that stuff in San Francisco, that was going. Nah, man, nobody plays that shit anymore. That's old school. That's you know, go shit. What are you guys talking about? You should be so fucking lucky if you could sing harmonies like that and write songs like that. And and you know, so all that music was considered totally passe. None of the bands were playing them. And the Nerves was a band that really uh, appreciated that music and was definitely taking from it. So. That was it. Did you, I mean, with that New York scene at that point, obviously there'd been the Velvet Underground and then bands like Suicide and that kind of arty scene. I did a, an interview with a member of Suicide and he said, you know, we played in galleries and funny little clubs and stuff like that. Did that kind of underground scene creep into your life at all? Or did you? Well, it did. Yeah, it did with the nerves. The nerves played with Suicide at, at Max's Kansas City. When when I, before though, before I left New York to go, at, to California, and when I met the nurse, I didn't know about any of that stuff. I actually, I'm, I don't really know how conscious I was of Lou Reed or the Velvet Underground or suicide. Um, I, I know I was not conscious of any live performance of like you know avant-garde bands or anything in New York before I left because the only stuff I knew about, like I used to go to the Fillmore East and we would see Mountain and you know, Jefferson's Airplane or Jefferson Starship and, you know, uh, what was that band? from? Was it Michael uh, Bloomfield or someone like that? I knew of Michael Bloomfield, but more of like, you know, Can't He, uh, I saw the first, uh, or um, Black Sabbath, I said Mountain, um, what's that band from Boston? First I look at the first, Jay Giles. Stuff Jake like Hans, that. Yes. What about people like Spirit and Randy California? Oh, I love Spirit. I love Spirit. And I Comic love Spirit. Rooster and stuff like that, too. 
Yes, classics, classics, aren't they? Nature's way. Fresh garbage. We loved it all, didn't we? Yeah. So yeah, drumming, drumming. Way, I thought, you know, to me, Nature's Way was like all the other great pop songs that I knew. I was just, this is a great song. Yes. They probably wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't go that far themselves, but I love that stuff. Oh God, me too. So look, then, then, so the nerves, then it all sort of started for you when you heard Hanging on the Telephone, which obviously we've all grown to love because of another pop band from New York. So when when that came together, was that kind of quite like the planets lining up very quickly? The planets lined up very quickly to be told to fuck off by every person we met. Everybody told the nerves to fuck off. That's Except a, for a few people, you know, a few friends. And yes. So the life The nerves didn't get anywhere. Absolutely nowhere. Zero. I'm not kidding. And 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 I, you know, now later on I became a songwriter and I became a songwriter during the nerves. But you know, when I heard the songs of, of Jack Lee and Peter Case, I was like, okay, this is a done deal. You know, in three weeks we're gonna be on top of the pops and you know, we'll be driving around in limos. This stuff is as good as anything I've ever heard in my life. And it was categorically, and I was like, I couldn't understand it. I yes. Really so I your first, so your 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 first e kind of four track EP, you know, was released in seventy seventy six. What record label was that on? That was on Nerves Records, and then Bomp Bomp, you know, Greg Shaw heard it, and he put out, you know, he he bought the rights with it. The money we we he bought the rights to print up eight hundred copies, and with that money, he paid us in advance for the eight hundred copies, and that's kind of the money we went on tour with. Yes, blimey, that was such a, a moment. Do you think if you had been in Britain, you would have been a lot more successful? Because you, you sort of would fit into people like, you know, Dr. Feelgood, you know, the doctors. I and... don't know. I don't know because, you know, um, there's a, there are a handful of American musicians like the Stray Cats. I guess maybe, I'm not sure, but I thought Tom Petty. You know, there's a handful of American musicians that went to London or whatever, or the Ramones. And they were they they got more success there than they did in the United States. Yes, throughout my career, like all the bands I've had, I've 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 never really felt that you know England was a place we really triumphed. And I remember when the beat came out, it was definitely a no. And I always got the impression that in England it was. This kind of music is a valuable commodity, and we're reserving our push for our musicians. You know, we're going to give, you know what I mean? English musicians are the ones that are going to eat this great. And that's kind of the way it seemed. Yes. It's just that the, the, with the, your songs and that sort of songwriting, it reminds me of people like Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson. And then you had sort of, you know, Nick Lowe and, and you know, people like that, that kind of singer-songwriter with the, yeah. power, the energy, you know, a certain amount of anger. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it uh, it did, but um, you you know, I, I I've been kind of on the outside of the the mainstream of the music world for most of my life, and part of me thinks like you know, you really didn't have the business side together. <laughs> Yes, because you know those cats 
they were great, but they also had really they had really good business people working for them. You know, what was it, Jake, whatever for Elvis? I don't know who was pulling the strings. Yes, that's right. But you know, we 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 couldn't get arrested. I mean, it was just anyway. One never knows. I have to keep constantly reminding myself that I am very fortunate and extremely lucky to have been able to have any kind of career in music when you when you when you see how absolutely cutthroat the business is and absolutely how much uh competition there is yes there was a there's a guy i interviewed last night ukdk and i mean their record sales weren't huge but their live performances were very well attended what was your live shows like with the nerves very well under attended (laughs) (laughs) yes So how did, you know, you you bring out the four-track EP, then what happens next? Well, you know, obviously, we're we're very young, and and we, for a brief time, we were kind of like, we literally lived in our own world. And I mean, we saw no one else, we knew no one else. I mean, you know, we were very, very isolated. And we spent most of our time together and we weren't really doing heavy drugs. I mean, you know, we, a, we couldn't afford anything. We might have, you know, I think we were lucky if we would get a joint, you know, once a week or something. But we would, we fell into like, you know, an altered sense of reality fueled by just uh, sheer energy and, and desire and whatever you want to call it. So, um, Everything we did was going to be a make or break it thing. You know, okay, we're going to make the record and that's going to establish us. Then the world will take notice of us and we'll be on easy street. So we make the record and that doesn't happen. So then the next idea is, all right, we got to do a national tour, not a local tour, not a regional tour, not some shows. We got to go. And, and this is how, you know, out to lunch or whatever you want to call it, we were. It, we we it wasn't we couldn't just go from Los Angeles to New York. No, we had to go from Los Angeles to New York and back. It had to be a two way trip to to qualify in our minds as the national tour. Yes. It had to be round trip, which was a colossal undertaking for a band that had no manager, no record company, and a forty five in the back in the day with no computers. Everything was done on a telephone and putting stuff in the mail and hopefully believing that the guy on the other of the phone wasn't jerking you off and you'd show up and he'd go, what the hell are you talking about? So <laughs> we did that. And um, for three years, I really think we put out an absolutely, I, I, I always have a hard time pronouncing this word, Herculean effort to get nowhere. It was just, I don't think any three people could have put more energy and whatever you want to call it into doing something and getting pretty much no results so when we got back from that tour it was just it wasn't even devastating it was just we were done we were finished there was nothing left yes you know there was not there was nothing to feel there was nothing to think there was nothing to hope for it was just like and I was, you know, 18, so I still had boundless energy, but I was like, man, 
what do you got to do to get over in this world? And being in Hollywood under those circumstances, you know, Hollywood is in a unique place because most everybody is there to make it. You know, that's, that's the, you know what I mean? They want to make it in film or music or whatever. It's kind of like the main thrust of that town. Yes. So if you're there and you're not making it, every single second you're there, you know it. You know you're not making it because you're looking at somebody who is. Yes, I guess, I guess you would have been see, seeing people like, I don't know, Pete Frampton come live and and then suddenly Fleetwood Mac and, and bands like that must have started. Everybody, even driving your car, you'd look to the right and there's, I don't know, Burt Reynolds and over there, there's Sally Fields or it doesn't matter. They're all, you know, they were all there. And the billboards and the, you know, Van Halen, the riot house, all the stories, the the this, that, and the other thing. And, um, you know, the Rolls Royces and it's just all rubbed in your face. That's what makes L.A. and Hollywood so unique. Whereas like London or New York, these are big towns. They, they have a lot going on. It's not just, you know, music and film. It's a million different things. Yes. And yes. Um, so... So did did you yeah. then sit down as a band to what year did you decide that was going to be it for the band when Jack left? Well, when well, well, when Jack left, that was it because Jack was a major part of the band and he was kind of the quote unquote leader. And when he said he didn't want to do it, that then I mean I was like devastated and I was like desperately, I was desperately holding on to Peter Case because I didn't know what to do. And and so, you know, I, I convinced Peter that we should try to carry on. And that's how we came up with that kind of very lame attempt to continue with the breakaways, which was a very lame name about a band that was breaking away and all that <laughs> shit. And um, but I, I do remember being so discouraged to have, you know, done, you know, meeting the nerves like a needle in the haystack. And and the material was just so unquestionably great to me. And then have that whole thing peter out and then go, okay, now I got to do something like this again, or maybe even better. I was like, oh, man, that's not going to be easy. No, that's that's definitely not. You didn't. Did you go in the studio much, you know, recording with the band or or was that always just mostly no, playing live? You know, the studio wasn't, you know, it's so funny today. I mean, people record in their homes, they record in their cars, they record wherever the hell they want to record with their phone or their computer. Back then, the studio was like kind of like the Holy Grail. And it was like, well, first of all, we didn't have any money. I'm not kidding. You. We had no money. We donated blood to get five bucks to get something to eat. So going into a recording studio was really, I mean, A, you had to have a really goddamn good reason to do it. And B, you had to have enough money to do it. In fact, the first time we went into the studio in San Francisco, we went to like the Automat, which was, there was only a handful of legitimate professional studios in San Francisco. And they threw us out. They literally threw us out of the building. They said, get the hell out of here. What are you talking about? You guys don't have a record company. You don't have a manager. You're wasting everybody's time, including ours. So get the fuck out of here. And they yelled at us. I'm not kidding. They yelled at the top of their voice, get the fuck out of here. And we're like standing there in our fucking suits. And I'm going, what the fuck is the matter? And we got money. We got fucking greenbacks in our fucking hands. And they're throwing us out. That's why we went to a Chinese studio. Blimey. Yes, that is. So that was that with 
the breakaways or the nerves? That was with the nerves. The breakaways, I don't think we, we never really record. And that's funny. The breakaways is probably one of the only bands in history that got a record deal 30 years after they broke up, you know, because the, the record that Patrick from Alive put out and us as soul for doing it. And it's really thanks to my bass player, Steve Huff, who was kind of like the archivist for all of us back then. He kept all these tapes and he called me up one day and he said, Paul, you know, I got a lot of recordings here of the breakaways. You ought to ask Patrick if he wants to put it out because it would make a great album. And it's and it's got, you know, those early recordings, which are which which actually the recording we did was at Steve Huff's house. He had a TAC four track. And they're great. If you listen to the breakaways, a lot of those recordings are dripping with atmosphere. Yes. They're making a living room. And and we really had a, we we really had our shit together. We had really good in, in instincts, intuitions, and our sonic awareness was really good. It's just very crude, but it's got a lot of atmosphere. Yes. So when did you, you know, as in during that period with the breakaways and then sort of obviously as the decade progressed, you know, the punk explosion started, didn't it, with, you know, like in you had the Ramones, then we had the Sex Pistols, the the Dam, the Buzzcocks, you know, the Clash. How did that start to how did that sort of affect your sort of musicality and songwriting? Well, it didn't affect our songwriting because we were so patently different. Um Initially, it was like, oh, man, what the fuck is this? And why are these guys getting over so well and we can't get arrested? You know, we, we kind of felt like. See, well, this is the weird thing about the nerves. And I've always thought this and, it, and it's, it's a pretty unusual thing. And it, it, I don't know if it's good or bad, but as three young men, we decided to go against everybody. We went against our peers. And we went against, uh, you know, the old guard. We went against the hippies and all that. And we also went against the punks. They were ripping up their clothes and, you know, doing the safety pin thing and putting eyeliner on. And we were wearing three-piece Yves St. Laurent suits. So we, we, it would have been the same as wearing a hair shirt. We were just putting our, we were, we ostracized ourselves with everybody. And not totally intentionally, but that's kind of the effect it had. And um, I, on one hand, could appreciate some of the coolness of the Ramones, like some of their songs. I didn't really embrace Beat on the Brat with the baseball bat or Snippin' Carbona or Glue with them because we were trying to write serious songs. And that, to me, was just a little bit too, um, what do you call it? You know, with that guy, Al... Uh, to novelty and then the damn i mean the the sex pistols there's no doubt when you know there's no doubt that musically these guys were fucking kicking ass wasn't exactly totally sold on the the uh the, the total vibe of it i didn't really kick into me on a bigger level because the clash wasn't the initial part of that initial offering when the clash kicked in when i heard london calling i said man these fucking guys these guys, I really dig this shit. And I actually tried to make a record with uh, with their production team, which turned into a big fiasco. But um, 
And then the Dead Boys. See that we when we were touring, we were playing Cleveland at the Cleveland uh, at the Cove, I guess. I forget what the fuck it was called, but um, give me a minute, I'll think about it. Anyway, the night that Time magazine came out with the picture of uh of uh what's the guy from the dead boys uh stiv baders on the cover or stiv and johnny rod and i remember stiv baders was in the parking lot and he was going my picture's bigger than johnny rod fuck johnny rod fuck the sex business we're bigger and it was all that kind of shit which we kind of thought it was like oh well i don't know and then we <laughs> walked in and, and and devo was on stage and they had red flower pots on their head now to us we were going Oh man, come on! What is this fucking shit? All right, I get it. They made it's it's maybe not politically correct to say that because everybody loves that and was a real conceptual thing, but it really didn't. I guess it didn't fit in with our admiration of the Stones and the Beatles and these guys and 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 all the music of the fifties and Elvis Presley and and um uh whatever uh, you know the the Everly Brothers. These guys doing what we thought was straight up really well-constructed, serious pop songs and stuff like that. Now, maybe we were just a little bit too head up or whatever, but we didn't, it didn't, we kind of just stood there and went, I don't know. It wasn't something we wanted to do. We, yes. we didn't say, yeah, let's get some flower pots and play with flower pots on our head. No, I don't think you could. Yes, that was the one off. So then, then when did you make that change between playing drums and then sort of taking the guitar? you know, becoming the rhythm guitarist? When, um, during the breakaways, because we were auditioning musicians and stuff, and I'd always played guitar. I had been taking folk guitar lessons since I was 10 or 11, thanks to my mom, and piano. So I had basic, the basic knowledge. And then, you know, writing songs and singing songs from behind a drum kit Unless you're Levon Helm, it's not easy to do. So yeah. I just, I, and I just, you know, I started just pounding out the shit with my guitar because I wrote, I wrote most of these songs on an acoustic guitar. So I bought an electric guitar and I just started playing, you know, real meat and potatoes, straight eighth note, bar chord guitar. Yes. And then, so... You you come up, I mean, bizarrely, you know, we were sort of been massive fans of the beat from the English, you know, from 1979 with Just Can't, was it Just Can't Stop It, that uh, mirror in the bathroom. And then you have your band called The Beat as well. So obviously that was a little bit of a, in, in, a moment, wasn't it? When did that, when did the penny drop that it was a bit of an issue there? At about 12 o'clock at night in Los Angeles, the first album was done. We were riding that high. And I remember I get a phone call at like middle of the night from a lawyer in London. And he's going, you know, we got a problem here. And I go, what's the problem? He goes, well, there's a band in England called The Beat. And they own the name here in England. You own the name everywhere else, but they own the name here. And I went, oh, shit. And I, I, I you know, to this day, I don't know why they were calling me instead of my big shot manager, Bill Graham or whatever or my big shot record company, Columbia Records, CBS. But they were calling me and they said, listen, you got to make up your mind what you want to do. And um, this was the pitch. The pitch was, this is like 1980, I guess, January. 
our, our, and, and the whole thing came about because, again, this is why I say that, you know, I never thought American artists were that, or, or the kind of stuff I did was that embraced in, in, in England or in London. CBS London, CBS England had my record, but they were dragging their feet on releasing it. It was released everywhere else, all through Europe, but it was not released in England. And it was not released in England when I met the guy because the head of CBS London was just like dragging his heels. He, he didn't know if he wanted to put it out. And in that time lapse, the English beat or the beat in England came out. And, and it, this, this became a strictly an issue of commerce laws, doing business as, you know, which, you know, that. Anybody who's doing business, it could be, you know, they could be a supermarket or they could be a musical group. So they own, for commerce laws, they own that name in, in England, nowhere else but in England. So they told me, this is what they told me. They said, and my record was out already. Yes. It was already out in the, in the rest of Europe. Copies were in stores with the beat on it and the whole nine yards. And they said, well, listen. You know, you know, this your record looks like it might actually do something. And um, the, 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 here's the situation. England and the UK is really the tastemaker country. And London is the tastemaker city for all of Europe. So you don't want to fuck yourself up by having your album be called something else in the UK. And then the rest of Europe having it being something else because the success will come out of England. So if your record becomes successful as a different name, you're going to kind of screw yourself up in the rest of Europe. And I bought that, which never really happened. So um, then they said, well, you have a couple options. You can call yourself the American Beat, or you can call yourself Paul Collins Beat, or, you know, wherever else you, you can come up with. So I fell back on a, something I had read somewhere in showbiz that said, when in doubt, use your name. Right. If you want to have a career in show business, use your fucking name because your name is going to be with you for a long time. So I opted for Paul Collins Beat, and then that caused a whole new glut of problems because there was product in the market as the beat, then they had to repress the record with the Paul Collins Beat and all this fucking shit. And, and, and at the end of the day, we never did anything. We never sold any significant amount of records. We never had any significant amount of airplay. We toured there, but it was really just a formality. And so I really regret. Now, this is, I, I, this is not because I had any feelings one way or another about the English beat. I actually liked, I thought, you know, their music was cool. I was like, thank God they don't play rock and roll like <laughs> we do. Yes. Like, they were a great band, but they were, you know, ska or whatever, you know. And I, I, I thought they were good. You know, there's no doubt they were good. They're still good. And I toured with Dave Wankling and the and his version, which is called the English Beat in America. But yes. uh, I regret having done that, and I really regret. Well, there's a lot of things I regret, but I also am. I don't regret. I'm angry that I had this high-powered team of Bill Graham and fucking Walter Yetnikoff and all these heavy hitters, and none of them said, Paul, fuck it, don't worry, we're going to go to bat for you, don't worry about this shit. They just threw it in my lap like they could care less what happened. Bloody hell. But you must, at that stage, how did Bill Graham come into your life? Because obviously, you know, this is a mega, 
mega sort yep. of promoter manager. It all been... came in the whole ball of wax. Bill Graham, Bruce Botnick, Columbia Records, Al Teller, Walter Yetnikoff, the whole ball of wax be, uh, came into my life because when I was in the nerves, I made friends with Eddie Money. And Eddie Money championed initially the nerves and then me as a songwriter. He spent a year telling anybody who would listen how great he thought I was as a songwriter. And he finally got my demo tape into the hands of his producer, Bruce Botnick, who said, I will do these guys. And Columbia, he went to Columbia and they said, you want to do them? Okay, we'll sign them. And then he went to his manager, Bill Graham, and he said, you got to manage these guys. And they did. So he single-handedly got me the whole deal. Blimey, blimey. And he he had quite a, a, a sort of history on his drug and drinking habits in, in the 80s as well, didn't he? He, you know, he, well, his, up until he had an accident, his drug and drinking was pretty much what everybody did. Let's face it. This is a satin jacket era. There was coke and weed and booze everywhere, everywhere, from record executives to the artists to the radio. I mean, everybody was getting high. I mean, if you weren't getting high, you were in like the 1%. <laughs> Everyone was getting high. And what he did last night, and I don't know, again, you know, he, and I know the guy who was with him, I think. He, <laughs> like a lot of us, he wore those fucking tight pants. And he passed out at a bar and he slumped over and he cut the circulation off to his lower body, all because he was wearing really tight pants and he did it for hours. And by the time they woke him up, he had done some serious nerve damage. Ooh, sciatica. This is not good, and is then, it? And then, and then, well, the throat cancer, you know, I don't know. Sometimes cancer is not a product of smoking. It can be. I don't know if his was from smoking or genetic, or whatever, you know, cancer is a tricky thing. Yes. I mean, I know people that have been smoking three packs of cigarettes and they die and they're 105. Oh, this is true, actually. Yeah, my God. So Bill Graham, what was he like, you know, as a person when you met him? Yeah, Bill Graham was a rock star, man. Bill Graham was like, you do not fuck with Bill Graham. And he, he loved music. You know what his top band was? The band he absolutely adored was the Grateful Dead. That was his, that was the greatest man in the world to him. But he, um, he was a showman. He knew how to put on really good concerts. You did not fuck with Bill Graham. If you, you know, like a lot of these guys, they, they had huge egos. You mess with him and he comes down on you. Like he's like a street fighter. You don't mess with him. <laughs> and um, there's famous stories like him and Peter Grant from the Led Zeppelin and, and other but the story I love about him is like, you know, Bill Graham, all these guys in America, they had their turf. You know, Bill Graham had San Francisco, so-and-so had Chicago, Weinstein or Wine Jam, whatever, had New York. You know, they all had their, you know, so-and-so had L.A. Well, Bill Graham had San Francisco. Right. And if you came into San Francisco and you put on a show at a theater and either you didn't know or you thought you were going to be a smart ass. And you didn't go through Bill Graham. He would go down to the show. He would go to the box office the minute it opened with a fistful of money. And he'd say, I want all the tickets. Everyone. I'm, 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 I'm buying every ticket you got. And they would sell it to him. And he'd go, now you're sold out. 
and no one's going to see this show. Wow, he was, he was he was territorial, wasn't he? Blimey. Well, to tell you the truth, they all are, and I'm sure it's the same in 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 in, in England and in London. These guys don't mess around. No, they don't. They, they got to where they are. It's a very tough business. It's not it's not a nice guy business. No. Look at no. Morris Levy. Morris Levy was one of the most bizarre people, wasn't he? So um Yeah. So um I was I was lucky that I, you know, I got to see that. I got to know him. He was he was very nice to me. He didn't, you know, we thought when we signed with him, okay, literally, I'm not I'm 21 years old. I'm going, this is it. I, I've got to, I, I better start looking for mansions in the Beverly Hills, man. I, <laughs> come on, we're on the Bill Graham, Columbia Records. We're going platinum. We're going to be so rich, we won't know what to do with our money. I mean, it was like inconceivable to us that we could miss. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But then, I mean, as an artist, you you sort of have to follow up with another album on Columbia for, you know, two years later. What was it like trying to muster any enthusiasm to sit there and get into you know, the headspace, getting the right spirit, the right vibe to write a new album when you'd had such a you know problem with the first album and the band name. Well, you know, um, let's just say, and I'm not the only artist that has has been victim of this. You know, if you you know, if we were like I don't know a heavy metal band, we or we were a hard rock band, or Maybe even if we were a punk band, well, no punk because punk is still getting a lot of resistance, or a ska band, or or whatever. If we were the kind of band that was accepted on radio and had, you know, a legitimate following of more than a couple of hundred thousand people, you know, or if we saw if we had sold a couple of hundred thousand copies of our first album, or even half a million, you got to realize back in those days, half a million was like no big deal. It was right. no big deal. Like half a million. Oh man, come on! What are you guys doing? So, <laughs> if you didn't fall into that category, there was just no enthusiasm for what you were doing, and 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 you were, and you were expected to come up with something that would fit in with that formula, that would fit in with what was radio was playing, that would fit in with what the public wanted, so that you were selling those kind of numbers. So. I always remember they had a notepad at Columbia and it, and and it and, and and you saw it a lot in the offices and on the on the top it said Columbia Records really big and then and the next line was, it was slightly slightly lowercase our main goal is and then the next line in really small letters developing new talent so I mean, it was like they just it the pressure for you know, some I remember every week they were like, "Yeah, this is new. This, you know, Copperhead's coming out, man. This is going to be fucking massive, man." And, and it like album after, and there was only one record that they said that to me too that actually did what they said it was going to do, and it was Culture Club. It was the it was only good. record. They, what, what was that one? What was that record that you mentioned? Culture Club. Culture Club. Which, oh yes, yes. They said, "Oh man, this is going to be massive." This guy, and, and it was. Other than that, everything else was just another fucking, you know, dog. Yes, dear old Steve Earle. We loved him, though, didn't we? But, um, yes, as the 80s progressed in this country, you know, we'd had that 
you know, Thatcher came in in 79, you had Reagan. Then we had, you know, we had the electronic sound. Then we had sort of, I don't know, indie pop. Then we had that Trevor Horn production sound, which was, you know. I was just reading about Trevor. Just reading an article about him. Uh, It said all the wonderful stuff he did. I'm not exactly, wasn't only crazy about all those records, but I, I realized he was incredibly successful. He was very successful. He had that, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, ABC, yeah, then he, all those, he had the Golden Touch. So when you got to sort of 85, 86, and you recorded that sort of 12-inch mini album, Long Time Gone, so what's the story behind this? Did you work with a member of Motorhead? That was, that was, that was just completely out the lunch. So we, we, we were, I guess we were, um, we were in London, and we were playing with, um, Oh God, was it Martin Blasey, the guy from, he was in, um, maybe that's not his name. He was in a band, he was in a, 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 had been in a relatively successful English band. And we almost got a chance to record with Mickey G on drums. And, and we were hanging out with, you know, some pretty credible people. But anyway, we came up with, we had, an, we had a, you know, a mini album's worth of material. And we had some money saved up because we had come from Spain. So we decided, Steve and I were living in a bedsit in, in, in Earl's Court. No, in, in, on Philip Marlowe Road. And we decided, you know, somehow, oh, we, we, we had, we had, were, were doing business with Philippe Debris of Closer Records. And he had a deal with Virgin, was his distributor. And through that whole hookup, he said, okay, I'm going to set you up with this guy. Um, What's his name from Motorhead? Oh, Luke, Lucas uh, Fox. Lucas Fox. And, and, and so we were like, okay, that sounds cool. So Lucas was living in London. And so we got together with Lucas and we went to this, I guess it's pretty well-known studio called Easy Hire. So we got a budget, I guess, I guess from Philippe in France. And so we go in and we're going to, you know, I don't know, it's like five or six days, something like that. You know, those are the kind of records we made four, five, six days, not nothing, you know, more extensive than that. So we go in, we're playing with Jim Barber, who's a, and Paul Boltitude from the Jet Set. He's our drummer. Jim Barber, who's like, he's still out there, actually. He still plays and he still posts music. He's kind of a heavier hard rock guitar player, but somehow we all, oh, he was friends with Paul Boltitude. So, you know, we, we, we did it and we did the songs. So the deal was we went to the studio and uh, with Lucas and we're like, Lucas, okay, we got five days. So we got to budget the time accordingly. Lucas is smoking and drinking or smoking so much goddamn pot. He completely loses track of the time. And so we're going in on the last day and the guy's going, hey, you know, this session's over in three hours. And Lucas goes, what are you talking about? He's like on his knees. No, come on, man. You got to let me. He mixes the record in like 20 minutes, literally. And of course, he turns it in and the record company goes, what the fuck are you talking about? So they pay somebody else to mix it or something like that. But it was was (laughs) one of those fiasco recordings. But I don't know. I guess it has some good songs on it. Yes. You know, it's, we, we, I think there's, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of artists, when you're operating outside the limelight and everything is an uphill battle, 
it's hard. You, you don't know what to think about it because nothing is being made under optimum conditions and everything is a compromise. And you're just going, well, okay, I guess we did the best we can do. You don't know if it's good or not. Um, sometimes the producers are uh, rather dodgy and they have their own plan or ulterior motives of why they're doing it or, you know, they're doing it to pay a bill or get their girlfriend home or some shit like that. So, um, <laughs> yes. It's, 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 uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, when when I read the stories about the Beatles, like, you know, they went to the studio every day. It was like their job. They would get there in the morning. They would rehearse the song. And at two o'clock, they would start recording. And by four o'clock, they had finished, you know, some fucking amazing hit song. And then they were good. I was like, wow, that must have been a lot of fun, you know? Yes. Did you did you watch the film, the the eight hour film of them making their last studio album? And no, I saw the uh, the the hour of get of, of get back, and I thought, okay, that's enough. Yes, I'm sure it's great, but I didn't have that platform. And you know, there gets a point in your life where, I mean, for me, where you get you know you you get burnout at being at the Beatle altar. Yes, this is true. So look, as we get to the end of the decade and start the 90s, obviously there's a huge shift. In the UK, you know, there's the ecstasy moment comes in. There's more of a scene for dance music. Then you had, you know, the Seattle grunge scene. So as you turned into the 90s, did you decide to reinvent yourself again and start um, as a solo artist? No, 90s was the worst decade of my life, bar none. Basically, I was off the map. I fell off the map. It was the worst decade for me. I did some things musically, but it was all a complete bust. It was depressing and it was humiliating. And it was like, I think everybody knew me. I said, like, come on, man. When are you just going to fucking give up and move on? And, you know, I don't know, start selling cars or, you know, learn how to program computers or something. (laughs) Because this stick you're working is not happening. And I just held on. I just, you know, I, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, my personality or whatever. I don't give up. I just don't fucking give up. I can't. I just can't give up. Now, that can be a good or a bad thing. And at certain times in my life, it's probably been a bad thing. But I can't give up. I couldn't give it up. I just couldn't. Yes, but you keep releasing new material and new songs and you keep creating well, stuff. I'm very excited about my last record that I just made here in New York. Um, I had a lot of really uh, wonderful musicians donate their time and talent. Dwight Twilley, the guys from Shoes, Ronnie Barnett from Muffs, Chris Von Snyder, Prairie Prince from Todd Rundgren and the Tubes. Um, Richard X. Heyman here in New York, and they've all contributed. And I, I, you know, for me, ever since after, really after the first album, the the biggest drama or trauma of putting out a record is, do you have enough really good material? And when you're a songwriter and when you love the Beatles and shit like that, sometimes it's just really hard, you know, to come up with 12 songs or to go, yeah, every one of these songs is an A plus song. It's brutal, you know. And if it's not such a great song, you know, because that's kind of what keeps, I think, me honest in the in the field that I'm in. Yes. I can't. I'm not getting over on a great guitar sound or on my, you know, my my lead singer who jumps 15 feet in the air or whatever. I gotta have a good song. 
if I don't have a good song, I'm screwed. <laughs> so how did you just briefly then, because you have, you know, you, you do this musical, don't you? Green Day, the Green Day Broadway musical. How did How did this come into your life? It came into my life. I was sitting on the other side of the room before I remodeled my apartment at, at my desk that I found on the street. And I had my computer and I was booking a tour because I went, I spent maybe from 2008 till right before the pandemic, DIY touring, you know, Europe, America, Canada, even China and Japan. And I booked myself. I was a DIY journeyman musician. And I, I have to, Thank my lucky stars I could do that. I made my living, a hard living, but I made it. I paid the rent. I raised my kid, put food on the table, you know, revenue streams. My ex-girlfriend used to say, it's all about revenue streams. Yeah. And it's true. 200 here, 300 here, 400 there, 150 here. You add them all up and they mean something. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I start to get these emails from fans and stuff. Hey, Paul, did you see the uh, clip of Joey? Of, of, Billy Joe doing Walking Out of Love on Broadway. And I go, no, I did not. <laughs> and so I click on it and they go, holy shit. This is the biggest star in the world. He's built stadium and he's singing my song on Broadway. That's fucking amazing. So I start to get a bunch of emails like that. And then somebody sends me an email. He goes, hey, Paul, you getting paid for that shit? And I go, oh, right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Maybe I should be getting paid, right? So I go, okay, this is going to be great. I'm going to call up BMI, my publisher, and I'm going to ask him where, where the, all the money is for these, you know, this guy's playing, uh, playing my song in a packed house on Broadway where the average ticket price is 600 bucks. I guess I would be entitled to something, right? So I, finally I call up, I go, hey, this is Paul Collins. I'm a BMI writer. Um, you know, my song, I come to my <laughs> I said, this is going to be, you know, I make a million phone calls. And this, this is going to be one of my all-time best phone calls I've ever made in my career. Yeah. It's come to my attention that Billy Joe Armstrong's playing my song on Broadway. Uh, Broadway, okay, that's theatrical. Let me patch it through. And so they, finally, I get this guy. And he goes, I go, you know, it's come to my attention. Billy Joe is singing my song on Broadway at the uh, American Idiot Show or whatever. And he goes, what do you want, money? And like, you know, I'm sure this has happened to you where, where somebody says something like that and you're so dumbfounded, you don't say anything instead of like, yeah, what the fuck do you think? Who pays your salary, asshole? Of course I want money, you know? But instead I go, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, that would be nice. And he goes, well, let me look into it. And now I'm 50 some odd years old and I've been in the business a long time. And then he, he says the most humiliating thing of all, he goes, yeah, but while I'm doing that, could you put together a reel of, you know, some of your really good songs so I can kind of, you know, take a listen and get acquainted with you and all this stuff like he's going to do something for me. Like he's just basically jerking me off, my own publisher. And so I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I get a call back from, I don't know, him or his secretary. Well, no, technically speaking, it's in the encore, so it's not really part of the show. So you're not entitled to any money. I go, okay, thanks. But so then, then I, I, um, at this point in time, I was touring a lot, and uh, a lot of my tours were acoustic solo tours. And I morphed from in the beginning of my career when I would never say two words to the audience except maybe thank you, 
because I was too uh, embarrassed to speak or whatever, I started telling stories and that became part of my shtick, you know, and I had good stories to tell, you know, that this song or that song or what happened. So this became one of my stories when I play Walking Out in Love. I'd say, you know, I didn't get any money, but hey, I get to tell you this story. And they're going, ah, it's great. Excellent. And that was it. There was no big, there was no check. No, no, there was. But what happened was, um, coincidentally, you know, the show ran on Broadway. And at the, on the day the show ended, I was doing a radio show down the street from me at this guy's called Anything Anything Radio Show. It was a, a, a digital or an internet radio show. That was pretty well known. And the guy who was doing the interview with me, somehow, I guess that came up in the the, the conversation or it, it, it might have, it might have, but after the show, he said, listen, you know, Billy Joe uh, from Green Day is having his cast party for the end of the show of uh, American Idiot. And I guess he must have known that Billy Joe had played Walking Out Love. He said, you know, I got an extra ticket if you want to come with me, you know. And it was like literally 10 minutes from my house. I'm a lazy motherfucker. So I said, oh, I can't, I can't pass this up. So I went. And um, when I met Billy Joe, he was unbelievable. He's hugging me. Now, bear in mind, at this point in time, he is one of like two or three acts. They're the biggest acts in the world. They're the he only is. ones that can fill stadiums on their own. So he's hugging me and he's going, oh man, I love walking out love. It's such a great song. Thanks for coming out. I can't wait. Can I buy you some drinks? He said, listen, we're going to play later. Come on up and play walking out in love with us. It'd be such an honor. Of course, you know, what am I going to say? No, because so <laughs> I do it. And uh, he's so cute. He, it's because walking out in love, it's like when you write a song and everybody loves, but it's only a minute and 30 seconds. So, you know, the, the glory is over real quick. So we played it and he goes, ah, come on, let's just play it again. And, and we played it three times. So um, he was very, and I'm going like, you know, this guy's really cool. This guy is like, he's huge. And, and, and if anybody had the right to have an attitude, he did. And he That's just true. treated me like a fanboy, really nice, no airs, no, you know, no attitude, just like, and you could tell, uh, you know, and I've met a handful of people throughout my career that you could tell they really were, they were in it for the long run and they loved music. They really loved music. They loved everything about it, not just themselves and their contribution, but they loved anybody who made a contribution and they respected anybody who made a contribution. And I try to keep that front and center with myself and to spread that love and whatever with anybody I come in contact to. And I think I have been in general people, musicians and stuff who come in contact with me would say that I'm very supportive and that I encourage them to do what they're, they're going to do. Yes. So look, just coming up to the current time, your book, when did you, when did the idea of a book came into your consciousness? Did you have one of those moments where you had a late night and thought, I'll do a book and then woke up in the morning thinking, I'm not sure if that's, that's such a good idea. No, so actually, what... I, did, I didn't wake up in the morning. I, I woke up in the morning and kept going. Uh, it's fun. Now, I, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm equating myself with this writer or anything he's done. But I was in Spain and we're talking 2000. Well, it, was, it, it may have been 2006, 
or five even, maybe six, maybe seven, not sure. And I read, I'd been living in Spain for a long time in Madrid. And, and I love Spain. Spain is kind of like my second home. And I have a long history with the country and the people. And they supported me and they love my music. And they've kept me alive. And, and I, I just, you know, I'll always love Spain and everything mm-hmm. about it, the culture, the food, the people. And um, I read For Whom the Bell Tolls by, by Hemingway, which I'm not a huge Hemingway fan, but that book is a, it's just a fucking master. It's, and especially if you've lived in Spain, it's the kind of book you read the book and you go, I want to meet these people. They're not, they don't exist or they're not alive anymore, but you're really like, wow, these are incredible people. So I read that book and then um, for some reason, I just said, you know, I want to write a book. And that book was written kind of like, uh, what's that, uh, you know, on the road with Jack Kerouac in, 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 in three or four days. The bulk of it was written in three, maybe a week's time of just total stream of consciousness. Now, the, this, is, this was my premise because I am a songwriter and I've trained my mind to remember all my songs and all my lyrics. Like, you know, I know the words to all my songs. Yes. I don't have I don't have to refer to anything to tell you what you won't be happy or rock and roll girl or that. Mean. Now, bear in mind, they're not that complicated, but it's a lot of words over the years. And I my my mind has been trained like, I guess, a mini computer to remember all these words, all the chords, all the musical ideas. We very rarely uh, we didn't tape things because this was our premise. If it's not good enough to remember, how fucking good could it be? So. That was our thing. So we, we, we trained ourselves to remember the stuff that was important. So I just did that with my life. I sat down and it wasn't hard for me to do. Now, there are holes in my memory, which I'm finding out when I talk to some people. They say, no, man, don't you remember? And I said, no, I don't. But so I just did the entire span of my life from memory. And I figured that was the best way to do it because I was only going to talk about what really stuck out. Now, at that point, I was maybe, I don't know, 45, 50 years old. Of course, it stuck out when I went to Vietnam. Who's not going to remember getting on a plane with your mother and going to this, you know, completely different environment as a six-year-old? I remembered a lot. I remembered our house. I remembered how we went to the market. I remembered the maids and the food and the this and the that. So. You know, it wasn't really hard to remember that or to remember my high school years or to remember the things that stuck out from when I was in grade school. Yes. And that was so that was 2006. You hit. hit. But then what happens? Because because, you know, 2023. Well, what happened is this. I wrote it. As a stream of consciousness, a Spanish publisher published it in a very truncated form from this with a different title in Spanish. (laughs) And then uh, a lot of time went by. And and then when I moved back to America and I was also, this is, you know, this is kind of like my uh, unrealistic or naive attitude towards everything in life. I come here and I go, 
you know, after I've been trying to make an amusement, I've got, you know, nothing can be as difficult as that. Anything else is going to be easy. Ah, get a book published. I'll just send a fucking bunch of emails to book publishers and they'll put it out. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I jump into it. I send up, you know, 300 emails to publishers who all send me back stuff like saying, you know, nobody reads anymore. Music books are a dime a dozen, unless you're, you know, the drummer from Cream who gives a shit. So, um, Finally, I got in touch with Todd and I said, you know, I, I've got the rough outline of a book, but I really need someone to help me to, you know, bring it to finish it. And he said, I'd love to put it out. I got just the guy, Chuck Nolan. You get together with him. You guys finish it up and I'll publish it. And that's what happened. And that mm-hmm. process, though, that process took two years, I think. Right. Was that soon- he was working? And we would go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You know, everything takes time. It does. But what's really fantastic, I mean, it's an amazing story, but also your archive of archives of photographs, of um, record discs, labels, sleeves, and also all the posters as well. Did you have to find... That's amazing. That is actually amazing. I don't know how that happened because I have moved so much the fact that, and I still have a lot of this stuff sitting right here, and I've moved countless times. You know, I, I, I started my career in California. I moved back to New York. We wound up living in Spain, moved back to California, moved back to New York, moved back to Spain, moved back, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And somehow, well, part of it is my mom had a studio in Manhattan, and I kept a lot of stuff there for many, many years. Steve Huff kept stuff for quite a while and then he sent it to me or no, I picked it up from him. So, and I had the wherewithal. I mean, I have like, you know, 80 copies of these mimeograph posters of the nerves at camp at, at, at uh, Golden Gate Park. I mean, just flyers like that. How I, I said, well, I'm going to keep them. And I kept them and they're in, and they're in uh, mint condition. It's brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And Max is Kansas City as well. I mean, these are all these are all things we love to see now, don't we? Because it's well, there's an artistic yeah. quality of it. Right. Originally, I didn't. I, I I kind of was on the fence about how many pictures we should have in the book. But then I realized this gives the reader a real bird's eye feel of what we were doing back then. You know how we promoted ourselves. And what we would see and the posters and all that stuff. And um, so, yeah, again, I can't thank Todd enough. And and, and, to, and, the, and the three-piece suit and that, that oh, classic yeah, picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it took me a while to figure out who took that picture. I had to really track down that guy, Gary Green. But um, I have to, you know, I have to really thank Todd because the production value of the book, the paper quality, the, the, the photo reproduction. Just the, all the production, the, the the font, the layout, everything. It's great. Yes, absolutely. So look, this decade is looking better, isn't it? You've got the, the book out, the new album, Out of My Head, coming out as well, haven't you? No, Out of My Head is already out. This is the thing. Out of my, I, 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 did, I didn't make it quite clear. I said, Bob Gruen's coming by to take a picture of me. And I put that picture because that's the last album. But he also took that picture. The new right. album is called Stand Back and Take a Good Look. And he does the cover and the back, but it's not been, uh, hasn't been assembled yet. So that's coming down the pipe. 
Right. But that's recorded, mixed and ready to go. Oh, yeah, it's it's done. And um, I'm very happy. It's got Stand Back and Take a Good Look by Jack Lee. It's got Will You Come Through, a Peter Kay song from, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Breakaways time period. And then it has um, 10 other songs. Amazing. That is fantastic. And and live dates. Have you got live no, dates coming up? No. You know, man, I'm, I'm, uh, and I don't mean this in a, in a, in a bad way, but the reality of this situation, the kind of music I play and the audience that I can draw and the conditions that I can perform under, they're just too rigorous for me now. You know, it's just too difficult. I don't have an infrastructure and I don't have a tour bus. I don't have a roadie. I don't have a manager. I don't, you know, it means a guitar on my back, a suitcase full of merch. And I, I just, I just don't, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I might play some shows around town, but touring, that kind of touring, it's too grueling for me. It just yes. is. And I don't mean it like, I, I don't feel that anybody owes me anything. I think I had, you know, I, I made a living touring. I'm very happy. I love this thing. I love the clubs. I love playing for the people. It's just that, you know, a lot of the uh, conditions are too hard. There's no dressing room, or there's no this, and you know, I just, I, I just don't want to do it anymore. I might, I might change my mind, you know. And if the album had tremendous success, but I think now, you know, I've told you how unrealistic I am. I think now I'm realistic. I, I kind of, you know, I'm a niche market artist, and there's a ceiling on on what we can reach, and that's okay. I'm all right with it. I'm all right. Yes. Thanks the Lord. I'm not depending on my next meal from touring because then I would be in deep trouble. I would. <laughs> yes. And are you going to be going to Spain promoting your book though? No, I'm, what I'm going to do is this. I'm off to Italy in a couple of days for a, a very lovely 30 day vacation with my girlfriend and just, you know, being a, being a tourist and enjoying life. And when I get back, when the record comes out in February, I believe, what I've told both the record company and the book publisher, Todd, is that I would like them to join forces and help me do targeted in-stores where I either play at a record store or a bookstore or both, you know, doing a few songs acoustically, reading from the book and signing CDs and signing uh, books and hopefully doing it in some of the places where these well-known artists who contributed to the record live so that they can come down. And we can just have a nice thing of it. That to me is is a dignified way that I can promote the book and and people can come and see me and they don't have to pay. And, uh, you know, we'll see what excuses they come up with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Is that 3.30, man? Oh, I, I got to pick my kid up from school. I'm sorry, I can't make it. I don't know. I think people actually I think it's a very good time because you wouldn't believe how many people have been writing their books at the moment from from sort of quite... Yeah, different walks of life. But this this kind of period, probably more the 80s. I think the 80s had been forgotten a bit or it hadn't been relevant. But then a serious period of time passes and then people think, it is really curious because you have a narrative of the 80s. In the UK, it was like, you know, there's like Trevor Horn, there's Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, Live Aid. It's a very, and then people look, go, oh, actually underneath that surface is quite different. And then you want to, 
you want to know about all the little indie gigs and indie bands and stuff like that. So it's changed. Well, you know what's funny is there comes a time where all this subculture, hard to find stuff becomes cool with people like going, oh, you didn't hear about them? Oh, they're fucking amazing, man. You know, not many people knew about them, but shit. So then all of a sudden, you're the purveyor of things that, yeah, I mean, it's like saying, you heard the Beatles? Yeah, I heard the Beatles. No, do you hear this little known band that was even better than the Beatles or whatever? You know what I'm saying? Then yes. all of a sudden, you're the connoisseur of stuff because everybody knows the big stuff. Obviously, they know the big stuff. But it's the, the little things that slip through the cracks that were good. It's you know, true. that that then then it's like, oh wow. And you become like someone who's like passing on this privileged information to somebody else, and they're going, Wow, I can't believe I found this. This is really cool. And so it takes on a whole new meaning. This this is true. This is very true. And actually, there's been, yeah, I think that's because I've noticed your Spotify. You know, plays on Spotify is quite high, isn't it? It's it's um so people are discovering the bands, aren't they? I'm I'm becoming spotatific. <laughs> yeah, I you know, first of all, Spotify for artists like myself, well, Spotify, you know, Spotify is amazing for Taylor Swift, but it's also really good for artists like myself because Let's face it, everybody really does enjoy the convenience and the ease of, and I pay to have a Spotify account because it's important to me. If somebody said, oh, did you hear? And I, or I see something, I go, check out what these motherfuckers are really doing. And I go yes. on Spotify, and in two seconds, I can hear what they're doing. And then I can decide for myself whether I like it or not. But as a tool uh, to expose yourself to all different kinds of stuff, and as a reference tool, it's fantastic. This is true. Now the only problem is, and that because that it's not it's not a problem. For example, I in fact I, I have a friend in Florida who works with this band. Have you heard the Jacuzzi Boys? Mm-hmm. They're, they're a band out of Miami, and they've been around for 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 a while now. They're kind of punky, but what they do is they don't even bother releasing their music in any of the traditional formats. They record something and they give it to a company that puts it on every single. Uh, streaming platform for free and their logic is we want our fans to get our music for free come and see us at the show and buy the shit from us yeah that's how it works and that's to me a good model if you're touring i'm not touring so it doesn't work for me per se but um that way you get your music out to as many people as you possibly can they get to access it for free and then hopefully when they come to your town you will have enough, uh, what do you call it, um, enough skin in the game that you're going to go to the show and you're going to buy their CD because you want to support them. Yes. Or the so T-shirt. Yeah, works. no, it's it, it's a good model. I think it's, yeah, one well. Do you have a Bandcamp page then for your music as well? I do, and Bandcamp is good. Um, at one point with this record, I was thinking, you know, Maybe I'll just, you know, maybe I'll just, because some artists here are going, you know, fuck all these, fuck Spotify, fuck iTunes, you know, they don't do anything for us. They don't give us any money. You got to have 25 million streams and we don't get that many streams. 
And, you know, I'm just going to put my music on Bandcamp because, excuse me, you can put your music on Bandcamp in a way that it's not streamable anywhere else. You can only get it from Bandcamp. So you're forcing people, well, and people understand that. And there is a, a, a consensus from Bandcamp that says, look, you put it out on us and their prices are, you know, their recommended prices are extremely reasonable. And I like their model too. They say, look, price your digital album at seven bucks or whatever you want. And they say, you will be surprised how many people will pay $25 for your record. You will be shocked because they want to support you. But um, so you can, you can do that. And there are artists that say, you know, hey, I put my last three releases only on Bandcamp and I've made a lot of money, a lot more than I would have, you know, because some people, some people, they're in a position where they kind of ha- either they have to generate some income to pay for the, the uh, recording or they're trying to support themselves by playing music, mm-hmm. which is an extremely tough thing to do. I am now no longer in that camp i was until recently now i'm able to i don't i don't need to make money off the music to survive i can survive i'm okay now i'm i'm okay because i have a very low overhead i'm not okay because i'm a millionaire (laughs) so and i and i like that you do have that option with Bandcamp, and it's easy You you know you take a picture you don't have to fucking do anything you don't have to produce you don't have to manufacture anything you just record it, master it, put it up, put your picture up, and 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 your fans who know you will buy it. So if you do have fans, like I have fans, they would buy it. But fortunately, my friend said, Paul, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, you've been making music for 50 years now. You want to release it on a label. You want a legitimate release. You want a record company that's going to service it to the press and do all that stuff. This is not a DIY hobby whatever thing and and you really want to do that sacrifice all that relative prestige to make 1500 bucks stupid so i said yeah you're right (laughs) yes but then 1500 bucks at least you haven't been ripped off well yes but if the record label that puts out my record gets me on Little Steven, I'll make 5000 This is true. Yes. It's a tricky, it's a gamble, isn't it? It's Las Vegas. It's but you know of... what the thing is? I, you know, I'm fortunately in the position now where if I, I want a record label to put it out because they'll do a nice job, it'll have, a, you know, it'll be properly produced. It'll be available in all the places that this kind of music is available. And and the trades like you know I don't know shindig and uncut and yada 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 we we'll all get get it and review it or not and it'll be uh it, they'll they'll work it at radio they'll work it they have a guy who who works it at the uh, you know commercials and stuff like that for licensing so it'll get the 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 treatment that it should get and if it if the record has legs and has you know create some kind of fire or spark it'll be great and if and if it comes out and they do that and nothing happens i'm okay with it my fans will buy it i'm assuming you know so i'll be okay (laughs) yes absolutely just last question oh i've got a strange feedback there um so do you have a label for this next record 
Yes, I do, but I'm not supposed to say it yet. So I'll have to send it to you because the guy said, look, I want to do, um, I want to do, I want to do, uh, I want to make a kind of a big deal out of it in December. It's a, it's a, it's a secret. We won't mention it. Okay. This is good, Paul. Well, look, this is going to be a great year. I'll give you a hint. It's one of the two biggest labels in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nice. Well, that's the hint. It's not one of the two biggest labels. (laughs) No, but uh, David, first of all, thank you for spending quite a bit of time with me in my little world. And hopefully, uh, you know, it's, it's a big deal for me to try to reach your listeners because um, I would like to expand my base with them. Yes. And, and hopefully the book and, and this interview will help me reach more people in, in, in your sphere. And they hopefully will want to listen to the new record. And, um, and my time has come. <laughs> yes, this is good. No, absolutely. Well, look, I'll let you. I'll let you get on because um, it's getting late here in the UK. But thank you again, Paul. And look, I really love. Um, you know, the book is a classic. And um, hurrah for Todd. We we need more Todds in the world, don't we? Really. But look, have a lovely evening, and I'm going to go to bed. See you later. Take care, and I'll okay, keep. Okay. Good night. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Paul Collins talking about his life in music and the new book, which is titled I Don't Fit In, My Wild Ride Through the Punk and Power Punk Trenches with the Nerves and the Beat. And as I mentioned at the beginning, available from all good bookshops and also online. Um, I'm sure anyway. This has been the C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Anyway, you can uh, find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. So uh, check it out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.